0: We're going to be in 1 Peter chapter 3 this evening. We're going to begin in verse 8, and Peter has just concluded a section of his epistle where he spoke about our opportunities, our responsibilities as Christians with respect to many of the different relationships we have. Our relationship to the government, our identity as citizens, our relationship to our employers, our bosses, those that we work for, those that we work with, and our relationship to our spouses. And the through line was submission. And if I could summarize what Peter said about those three relationships that characterize such a large portion of our life, I would say it like this. If you're fighting with the government, you're probably fighting the wrong battle. If you're fighting with your boss, you're probably fighting the wrong battle. And if you're fighting with your spouse, you're definitely fighting the wrong battle. We're called to submit, just as the Lord submitted to God the Father. But now he continues in verse 8 with the word finally. And Peter uses finally like I use the word finally about 20 minutes before the end of my message. So this is not him wrapping up the letter as a whole, but rather moving from this section on our relationship with our government, our employers, our spouses. And now he's making a broader point. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 8. Finally, all of you be of one mind, having compassion for one another, Love as brothers, be tender-hearted, be courteous. Five exhortations there. And I think the first is probably the most important. Be of one mind. Be of one mind. And of course we have to distinguish here between unity and uniformity. We are not all uniform. Even this Room, this small subset of a larger global church has many kinds of people with many different perspectives. But it reminds me of of the, the, the turn of phrase that summarizes this so well in essentials, unity, in non essentials, liberty, and in everything, love. Because God doesn't call us all to be identical pieces of the kingdom, of this temple that he's building, the church. We're living stones. We're not all the same. But we have to be connected to a common thread. That is what gives us unity. That is what makes us identifiable as a body, as the bride of Christ, as a community. That's what will draw us together. And no matter how the world interacts with different parts of that body of Christ, there needs to be this through line that says, hey, these people are all different. They're individuals, but they're all tied to a greater and truer reality, and that truth is Jesus Christ and the love of God that fills us. I think a couple helpful examples to visualize this One would be a choir. We all sing different parts. But together we work in unison to answer God's call for the church. We each have different gifts, different talents, different abilities. Some of which we are born with. Some of which the Lord gives us as spiritual gifts but we're to use all those in harmony to fulfill the greater responsibility that God has for His church. Another example would be DNA. Each cell in our body has a particular responsibility. One might be a kidney cell or a liver cell or something in the eye. There's, there's similarities, but all have Specific functions, let yet every cell contains the same DNA. It's all drawn together, many parts functioning together. And there are certain things that are needed to accentuate that. Things that we need so that we would be of one mind. Not only that we would have a common objective, not only that we would have a common love, a common foundation in Jesus Christ and the Word of God, because we're all going to think about things differently. But in order to have one mind, in order to all be of one mind, we all have to be the Word. Because that's how we're going to put on the mind of Christ. Scripture functions as our worldview. If we are all rooted to the same Scripture, we'll see we might have different interpretations in those non-essentials. We're going to see that before tonight's over. But the closer we all draw to Christ, as we seek to put on His mind and His heart, we will exemplify unity. Not uniformity, but unity. The verse also speaks of compassion to suffer with. In order to be together, in order to be the church, the things we're called to do to one another, suffering with someone can be one of the hardest things to do. but That's how we exemplify the compassion that we're called to have. I know in particular I really like to fix things. I like to make problems go away. And sometimes problems don't go away. There are certain things that only Christ can fix and there are certain things that won't be fixed as long as we live on this earth. But we're called to be compassionate towards one another. It's okay to sit in the suffering with a brother or with a sister. Because when you suffer through something... With someone, you're drawn closer together. Brotherly love. You know, they say you don't get to choose your family. And that's true of the church. We don't get to choose who does and doesn't come into this family through the redemptive work of Jesus Christ. We might not even like everybody. Some people might really rub us the wrong way. The sound of their voice, their mannerisms, the way they think or feel about certain things might just not sit well with us. But we are supposed to love them. We're supposed to have compassion towards them. We're supposed to be tender-hearted, as the verse continues sensitive to their needs, and also their feelings. I think the difficulty of being tender-hearted is allowing yourself to be tender-hearted. Because to identify the needs and the feelings of others, you have to be ready to sort of climb into the mess because it's really easy to walk by each other in the hallway or on a text message or on the phone and say, hey, how's it going? All right, thanks. We, we, we do it, both sides of the equation. We put on like a good strong face, and then the person we're talking with, we sort of enter into this mutual non-aggression pact, like I'll pretend everything's cool if you pretend everything's cool. And I'm not saying that every conversation in the hallway has to be like, oh, how are you doing? Oh, my God. But part of the love, part of the unity that we're called to have as a church is making time for those relationships and being willing to to sit there with our brother and our sister and, and open up a can of worms, sometimes that we would rather not. And perhaps that's a position that I get to stand in more often as a pastor, but the calling is no different. The only difference is the amount of time that we take to be there with people. Peter, in his epistle, talks about so much suffering, but think about the conversations we have with one another. I hope that you all have developed relationships where you can be candid and honest and open about the suffering that we're experiencing as people not even as christians just people life is hard life is difficult even when life is good it's hard and relationships are difficult to maintain but oh it is so worth it finally we're called to be courteous thinking of others what it takes to build relationships sometime just putting someone else's needs above your own well you know I could take care of this chore or I could go have coffee with this person I could tackle this hobby that I've been looking to get at or I could follow up on that conversation I had on Sunday and check in and see how that person's doing and not just to check the box but but really push and, and make sure they're doing okay. Because the Lord put it on my heart that, hey, you know, they're, they're hurting. Or they're in a difficult time. Maybe they need someone to talk to. It's courteous. We can sum it all up by John thirteen thirty five, a verse many of us know well. By this all will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. That's going to be much of our testimony to the world. What our testimony should not be, we find in verse 9. Not returning evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, blessing, knowing that you were called to this, that you may inherit a blessing. I'm waiting for the day that my first response towards being reviled. That my first response towards having wrong done to me is not to do the same back to the other person. That's the flesh that I live in. Praise God that there is often intervention before those feelings manifest themselves in me yelling back or kicking and screaming or getting revenge. But it says don't return evil for evil because that is always our first instinct. It's our nature. If they hit you, you hit them harder. And we're called to set that aside. Same with words. Stooping to to that level. We're we're to rise above. And so often we can do all those things that we're called to. We can be so obedient to what the Lord calls us to be to one another in verse 8. And we can erode all that trust and all that unity in one instant with a wrong response. It's so much easier and so much quicker to break down a relationship than it is to build it up. That's one of the reasons why we have to guard our tongues and our actions so much. Because we can build a... a it's, it's, it's the analogy with trust. Trust is a rope that's built one thread at a time. Those five things we looked at in verse 8, you know, building trust with one another, building unity, compassion, and sympathy. And it can all be severed at once. So we need to do the right thing and not do what we know we ought not to with respect to one another. But even more than that, when we face evil, when we face reviling, when people come at us, We're not just called to bite our tongues. It's great if we can control our flesh. But Peter serves a God that is interested in so much more than our physical responses. It was Jesus who said, you know, if you have hated a man, you have murdered him in your heart. So we're not just to not return evil for evil, but blessings. Instead, I asked myself in preparation for this, how do you, how, how what does that look like? What does that look like? Because I can imagine a lot of ways where it feels very awkward, like somebody comes and, and, and cuts me off, <laughs> right? That's one of those times when I am ready to return evil for evil what does returning a blessing look like? And it's, well, I'm, I'm pretty sure it's not like catching up at the stoplight. Have a nice day, you know, or like... It's, the question's not that simple. And the thing that the Lord burdened my heart with is that has to be an issue of prayer. Because who am I to know what a blessing would look like? Because God is the giver of every good and perfect gift. So whether that prayer for them is the only blessing I have an opportunity to respond, or to, to, to repay, to return, or whether the Lord would show something else. But if every time evil or reviling comes against me, I take that to the Lord and say, Father, how, how can I respond in a blessing. I trust he's faithful to give you a better answer than I could provide. And then Peter tells us what that lifestyle looks like. And he quotes Psalm 34 in verses 10 through 12. For he who would love life and see good days, let him refrain his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayers. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. There at the tail end of verse 9, it says, But on the contrary, we return evil with a blessing, knowing that one, this is what we were called to, this is part of the job description, This is part of the mantle that we picked up when we said, Jesus, take my life. But he says, don't just do this because I've told you to, but that you may inherit a blessing. If you can't do it for Christ's sake, if you can't do it for the sake of the other person, do it out of self-interest. Because we see there... In the quotes from psalm 34 he who would love life and see good days there's no way around some of the difficulties that this world has to offer but it's not bleak it's not all terrible there are shadows there are dark spots but that's not the entirety of our existence oftentimes looking back it's the minority the, when we're in those days Oh, the days seem really long, but the richness and the life and the joy we have in Christ should so overshadow that, that those dark spots just remind us the beauty of the life that Christ has purchased for us on the regular, persecution or not. And how do we go about living in that? Not speaking evil ourselves is never going to get us closer to that place. Deceit, lying, is never going to get us closer to that place. And evil is never going to get us closer to that place. But I think it's interesting that here it says, turn away from evil. We don't have to do anything for evil to find us it's said that there is a current in this world. There is a current of evil in this world. And if you're not fighting back against it, it is pushing you backwards. We have to turn away from evil because evil will find us. And even more than that, we have to pursue good. It's not natural. It's why I have to pray Lord, how do I respond to this situation with a blessing? Lord, how do I redeem today? How do I fill today with good? Because the answers that pop up spontaneously, the answers that fill in themselves, they're not filled with good. They're not purposefully heading in the Lord's direction. Something to be cognizant of. But then we look at verse 13. And who is he who will harm you if you become followers of what is good? It's such a simple statement, but it's a question of perspective. And it's a question of what do you value? Jesus says in in Matthew, you know, don't fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul, but rather fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. When we look at the evil, the reviling we'll face, in the context of the letter, when we see the suffering that we are going to experience, it begs the question, if your eyes are on the Lord, if your mentality is grounded In your heavenly inheritance, in the glory that will be revealed at the second coming of Christ. Who's he that will harm you? For doing good. Verse 14 But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you are blessed. Do not be afraid of their threats, nor be troubled. There will be suffering. The question is, will we suffer in pursuit of good or will we suffer in pursuit of evil? There's no easy way out. I saw someone post in a message board that I'm part of online. It was a pastor preparing a sermon and he said, how do you show people that have everything they need for Jesus. The kind of people that have have worked for everything and just have everything they could possibly need. And the question is, well, they have everything they thought they needed, but why do we see so many people in the, the upper echelon of material prosperity having grasped Every goal they set for themselves. Why is there still so much discontent? We don't have to tell them something they don't already know. There's suffering. The question is, will there be the fullness of Christ amidst that suffering? Or will there be the emptiness of sin and pursuing the wrong goals? Verse 15, but sanctify the Lord God in your hearts and always be ready to give a defense to everyone who asks you a reason for the hope that is in you with meekness and in fear. That word sanctify is very interesting. Awe-inspiring. What does it mean to sanctify the Lord in your heart? To put the Lord in your place, in the core of your being, that He captures your awe. That He is the thing that that brings you to life, that gives purpose. That without it, food has no taste. Vision has no color. Who could be more worthy of just our adoration than the Lord that we have built up in our hearts, that we have sanctified. When He has taken that place, that richness, that fullness, that... I can't even find the words, but if you've tasted that the Lord is good, then you've seen it, you know it, and it lasts. Securing that in our hearts... Another way I've put it throughout this study is is having our hand gripped on that eternal reality. Always having one hand firmly gripped on who God is and the inheritance that's been purchased for us. And the reality that our current existence is but a drop in the bucket. That sanctifies the Lord in our hearts. It inspires awe. And so then as we go throughout walking this world, we can expect that people are going to ask and we should be ready. And it begs the question, are you ready? A lot of times we negate the practice of being prepared to give reasonable answers to those that would inquire. The first question is, are people asking you the question? We should be living in a way and in the presence of people that should be asking the question. Sometimes, I think, as the church, we can find ourselves so insulated that we're not even around the people that would ask the question. How many unbelievers did you have serious interactions with this week? As a pastor, I mean... I, I'm ashamed. I'm ashamed at how low that number is for me many weeks. I saw a message from another pastor with a tremendously successful church in Malaysia and that at the age 24 had a, a, a very well laid out career in ministry for him. And he he stepped away. He stepped away to work at his friend's tech company because he spent all his time at church. And he saw such a need for him as a pastor, as a spirit-filled believer in the world, that he said, I don't feel like I can do what God is calling me to do here. Here I'm in a big church. I'm coordinating events and arranging Bible studies. And that's not to say that those things are important. Because believers need to be built up. But as you walk in the door, it says win, build, and send. And if we're never around the lost, how can we have an opportunity to win? Verse 16. Ah, one more thing I want to touch on, on verse 15. There's having the right thing to say, and there's saying it the right way. There at the end of verse 15, with meekness and fear. A lot of times when we do have those conversations, when we get in that position, we can say it with pride and arrogance. Just because we know what we're speaking is the truth, does not mean we have to speak it condescendingly. No one wants to hear or deal with a person like that. We don't have to assert the the dominance or the superiority of the truth that we know to be true. But with gentleness, with with meekness, reverence for the Lord. So there's what you say, and there's how you say it, and there's having the opportunity to say it. And then verse 16, having a good conscience before the Lord that when they defame you as evildoers, those who revile your good conduct in Christ may be ashamed. So let's say someone asks you, why are you different? You say, yes, this is the opportunity. And then you give them a great answer. And then they defame you. It's going to happen, and it does happen. We even do it today, but not necessarily to fellow believers. When it says there that when they defame you as evildoers, those who revile your good conduct in Christ may be ashamed. There's two ways you can interpret that verse. The first is with respect to end times. That when God comes to judge at the end of this age, they will see how wrong they were for coming against His children with evil. That they would see the complete truth and that they would be ashamed that here the Lord put His children in their life. And they accused him of evil for doing what they now know to be right at the revelation of Jesus Christ. The other way to interpret that verse is presently. And that means that right now, those who revile your conduct in Christ may be ashamed. And what this makes me think of is persecution, the character of persecution will be social long before it's physical. The character of the persecution that we will face as Christians will be social in nature before it is physical. So I ask somebody the question, I mean, we we are going to become more and more the minority. Society will work hard to make us pariahs, to try and shove us out. We are going to be the crazy people. I already feel like the crazy person. People are going to think you're as crazy as you think I am. It's coming. The spectrum is just moving. But then what does it mean that they would be ashamed by our good conduct? It would be to look at us and be like, oh my gosh, I can't stand those Christians. I can't stand for what they believe. You know, they're violating women's rights and everything, and they, they don't believe in all these things that we as a society lift up as moral and good and just, and you should allow these children to make these decisions on how they're raised and what they think, and why are they just, it's terrible what those Christians are doing. But gosh, I have one, and he's the best neighbor, Does that make sense? That, that, that they could despise everything that we think and believe? But based on the way we act, you know, they good for the property value. I don't know. <laughs> they're really nice. There's not nothing there. Now we move on to verse 18. Well, first verse 17, for it is better if it is the will of God to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. The only thing I want to say here is as much as we talk about suffering, we have to remember that if it is the will of God, meaning that suffering is not the goal, there is no benefit to self-inflicted or sought out suffering. There is no uh, inherent righteousness to martyrdom. And we've seen that in church history. Like, oh, if you want to be holier, just take a whip and just flay your back open long enough and you'll be closer to God. Because, you know, that's what Jesus experienced. That's backwards. Suffering is going to come. We don't need to seek it out, is all I'm trying to say there. And any of the suffering that we do experience is filtered by God. It's for us. Okay, so we stay in the center of his will. And there will be suffering sometimes. There won't other times. But it's the lot that the Lord has for us. So we keep one hand, gripped there in that eternity. And we follow the things that he has said. Being loving, compassionate, and of one mind. Verse 18. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive by the Spirit. That's the gospel. That's not confusing. Everything else I'm going to talk about is quite confusing, which brings us to verse 19, which is one of the most difficult verses in Scripture to exegete. You ask 16 different people what it means, and you'll get 17 different answers. Throughout the course of the last week, I've thought about teaching it three different ways. I think... Me and Patrick might teach it differently, unless I change my mind again. So, let's read verse 19, and we'll talk about three possibilities. Verse 19, well, we'll back up just a little bit in 18. That he, Jesus, might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive by the Spirit, by whom also he went and preached to the spirits in prison. Oh, Rob, that's not confusing. I remember this. This is the part where Jesus led captivity captive, and Jesus taught that, right? During the resurrection, he went and spoke to those that had died, believing in the Messiah that had not yet lived, right? So the Old Testament believers, when they died, they went to Abraham's bosom, and then During the period in between his death and resurrection, Jesus went down and revealed himself as the Messiah that they had been waiting for. And then he took them to heaven with him, right? He led captivity captive. That would be an excellent option were it not for the context that we find in verse 20. But that's what some people teach. And I don't disagree with. I just don't know if that's what Peter's getting at here. By whom he also went and preached to the spirits in prison, who formerly were disobedient. When once the divine long suffering waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is, eight souls, were saved through water. So while everything I just said was true. I don't feel that that option fits well with the context. So, what do we do with verse 20? Well, Peter could, another option is Peter could be speaking metaphorically. When he talks about those that were disobedient in the time of Noah, it could be referencing the spirit that is the spirit that powered, the spirit that raised Jesus from the dead was the same spirit that preached to those that... Well, wow. oh, it's confusing, but I'm making it worse than it has to be. Here we go. Let's start over. Reset. Option two. This is referencing the Holy Spirit preaching through Noah in the time of Noah's life. So the souls that were formerly disobedient were preached to when they were alive by Noah, even though now those souls are dead because of the flood. That's option two. Option three is the Nanananaboo Boo theory, which Jesus, in between the time of his death and resurrection, descends into hell and, and preaches. To the souls. Now, don't be confused by the word preach. It is not evangelistic. It is not evangelistic. It's a proclamation, right? So, pronouncing a judgment, which is entirely true. He has the right to do that. That Jesus, as the one who holds the keys to death, would go and proclaim that victory. In spirit. Two things I want to highlight. One. I don't know what Peter's trying to say. Two. There's going to be more than two things. (laughs) There are lots of smart people that disagree on what Peter's trying to say. And the more I look at it, The more I want to change my mind. But here's what we do know one, there is no salvation after death. Some people will use this to justify a false teaching that everyone will get a second chance. Like, it's okay if you die without having accepted Jesus as your Savior. He'll give everybody a second chance in hell. This has been used to justify the doctrine of purgatory. Like, oh, well, just pay a little bit of punishment, and then once that is settled, then you can go to heaven. You have one life, one opportunity to accept the work that Christ did on the cross. And when that expires, it's said and done. And now we get to some interesting verses that make much more sense on baptism. Verse 21. There is also an antitype which now saves us baptism. Not the removal of the filth from the flesh, but the answer of a good conscience towards God through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who was gone into heaven. And is now at the right hand of God, angels and authorities and powers having been made subject to him. We have a baptism coming up. And so it's always important to to look and highlight what that is. Baptism is not required for salvation. We see that with the thief on the cross. Jesus looks over and he says, Today you'll be with me in paradise. He was never baptized. But what is baptism? It's a a response. It's the answer of a good conscience. It's symbolic. It's representative. And that's okay. Especially here at Calvary, we have a tendency to be very relaxed with respect to our liturgy. We try fairly hard to avoid formulas and ritual. and But we see with baptism. We also see with the Lord's Supper. Remembering things and going out of your way to make a big deal out of something is important. I love my mother every day. But I'm glad that Mother's Day exists because it reminds me to express that. I am saved as soon as I confess with my mouth and believe in my heart what Christ has done. But I relish the opportunity to think back on the symbolism of being buried with him in death as I went under the water and raised in new life. And so, as we close this evening, finally, 20 minutes later, I want to take that concept. I want to take that concept of the answer of a good conscience, the response, and look at the physical picture of Noah. Because here's a guy that lives, that lived a very peculiar existence. And I wonder why Peter chooses, why the Holy Spirit through Peter chooses to put these concepts back to back. Noah spent between 55 and 75 years building a giant boat for a flood that was going to come even though it had never rained. Do you think Noah was the center of any social gatherings? Probably not. I'm pretty sure that Noah was the recipient of much social persecution. but he also had a project. When we talk about turning away from evil and pursuing good, we see Noah had a very tangible work product that he was undertaking for the Lord. And so I want to challenge each of you to look at the ministry that God has given you. How are you pursuing that? Do you have an ark? Do you have a ministry that God has given you? Something good that you are pursuing? Because it's always easier, right? Idle hands are the devil's playground. The more we are consumed with good, the more we are pursuing good, the easier it is to turn away from the evil that will pursue us all on its own. And we also see what happened when Noah didn't have that. Shortly after they landed and he planted a vineyard, we saw him stumble into sin. And I can't help but wonder or presume that when we're driven with such a purpose, when we're filled with the the calling... to to love one another and be and embody the church, when we set that down, when that becomes a side dish, when it becomes a garnish, when it just becomes a fringe benefit, I think it's easier to slip up. I think it's easier to lose speed. This life is is not without its challenges. But the Lord, in the things that He is calling us to, is so good to not only meet us in the suffering, but fill our lives and direct our lives and guide our lives in a way that we could love life and see many good days because of the richness that our Father has for us here. And we obtain that. We step forward. We walk closer to that by being obedient to so many of the things that he's laid out just this evening. And the lifeline for those is being always mindful that what we interact with now our government, our jobs, our spouses. Jesus is bigger. Jesus is greater. You can't, I can't say it more emphatically than that. He is so good. Father, we... Lord, I wish you would give me the words. Father, thank you that you're so great that you're beyond our words. Father, we thank you for the opportunity to to worship you with our life, to worship you with our decisions, to worship you with our relationships that what we can't articulate, we can manifest, we can live. Lord, in the example that Your Son set for us, that He would be incarnate, that He would come and live and walk amongst us. Father, allow us to be those ambassadors to a watching world. Father, allow us to be those that would make people want to ask the question. That that we would be those that could confidently answer the question. And Lord, even in the face of rejection, Father, that our eyes would just be so set on You that Your kingdom would come. Lord, we pray this in Your Son's name. Amen.